Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Quarantine Break Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you so much for joining me for episode 12. I know you're going to love today's episode with broadcaster and TV presenter Jake Humphrey. We perhaps underestimated just what the lockdown has done to the players and how how strange this environment is. And I, and I think we have to understand, you know, the first game I saw players coming out of the tunnel at Aston Villa and there was people in full PPE, you know, the proper white sort of forensic suits and all that sort of stuff. And if you or I turned up to work and there was people two yards fully dressed in PPE, it absolutely would have an effect. So I think sometimes we're guilty of thinking that footballers, because they play football, they're not they're not human beings. This is the most wide-ranging chat I think we've ever had on the podcast. We chat everything from footballers and Black Lives Matter to his new venture in sustainable eyewear, positivity on social media, and football and broadcasting in the world of coronavirus. Take a listen and I'll be back at the end. Hello, Jake. How's it all going? Hey, it's good. Thanks, pal. Um, you know, I suppose it feels to me a little bit like we've got a sense of normality back. So um, we took our kids to school this morning and that's the, only the second time in the last three and a half months that we've taken both our son and daughter off to school. And my wife and I have kind of come home to an empty house, which does feel super strange in some ways. Yeah. But I suppose a bit like you know, a few days ago, I hosted the first Premier League football game that I've done since the shutdown. And again, it just felt like a small step on the road to normality. And I know that um, it's not the normality we had before, but just these little things like taking your kids to school, going out to work, um, being able to go to the to the shops a little bit more. I think it's good for people, good for their mental health, as well as that, hopefully that feeling that, you know, we're kind of on the on the road to recovery, perhaps. Definitely. And it's feeling, I don't know about you, just a, like a better time in general. We're recording this on the cusp of a heat wave. Yeah. Football is back. And we spoke a little bit just before we started recording. But all of us are starting to think a professional haircut is in with a reach. 
I'm desperate for a, I'm desperate <laughs> for a professional haircut. Man, I keep on looking at other people on the telly who look smart and neat with good hair, and I'm thinking, how is that possible? Might to be fair, my hair does grow super fast. I'm I'm glad you're not recording video because otherwise people would be seeing like, well, let's see it anyway, <laughs> don't they? So, but they would see it with no product in, gym fresh, all over the place, and it does feel good. The only thing is like. Like on social media and stuff, it to me it almost feels more divisive than ever before. Yeah. You know, obviously at the moment there's a big conversation around the subject of Black Lives Matter. Mm. And I had a conversation with Rio Ferdinand on the television a few days ago about it. And and you have these sorts of big conversations on a big platform like on BT Sport and you know, loads of I'm seeing loads of well known people on well known channels talking really openly now about Black Lives Matter. And then I go onto my social media accounts and it's full of people totally misunderstanding the meaning of it or looking to kind of create more division or, um, I don't know. I I honestly feel like we are becoming more divided than ever, which is a real shame because I suppose we can tick global pandemic off the list of things that are going to unite people, which is sad really, isn't it? And I think it's been especially hard during this time because we've been pulled into social media more than we ever have. I certainly have. I Mm. used to use social media as a thing while I was bored, but now I'm reaching for it all the time and I'm getting pulled into these conversations. And I think I think you put it perfectly on BT Sport that you can no longer be just someone who isn't racist. You have to be actively anti-racist. You have to be calling out this sort of stuff. Yeah, you're totally right. That is exactly what needs to happen. And, you know, we saw the images of that plane flying over the top of the football match between Manchester City and Burnley. Well, the people that arranged that banner are clearly racist, right? But actually, the airport that allowed the plane to take off, if they knew about it, the plane company, if they knew about it, the pilot would almost certainly have known what was written on that banner because it's the kind of thing you would ask, right? Mm. You know, all these people individually I might say well I wasn't racist but I didn't do anything about it and that's the world that we live in now is that we all have to actively call it out shout yeah. it down you know not accept it and that that goes for a lot of things I think I often feel that my social media is is, is a bit of a bubble you know the people that contact me generally share my views the people I follow yeah. generally share my views when you get those kind of messages how do you deal with that um part part of me gets really kind of depressed about it and mm. you just think oh man this is such a shame um it almost feels like it's so broken it can never be fixed there's another part of me that feels slightly less negative about it because i think that one of the issues with social media is it's kind of people are constantly looking for things that verify their own opinion yeah right so therefore it almost becomes a more exaggerated example of what someone thinks so i kind of hope that the things that people will anonymously send to me i pray to god are not the sort of things they would say on the street or say to a person that they met um i because i you know you don't see that level of sort of vitriolic abuse when when you're walking the streets it's no excuse for it, but I kind of hope that it's only limited to social media. Um, and and I suppose on a personal level, it doesn't bother me because I learned quite a long... When I first started out in television, right, I used to read all the positive stuff mm. and be like, oh, yeah, man, I'm so good. I'm brilliant. Everyone's <laughs> loving what I do. But then I'd read the negative stuff and it would really send me crashing down. I'd be like, oh, I can't believe it. So I've sort of developed this new thing of making sure that I don't take the positives and think that's great Yeah. at the same time as I don't listen to the negatives and think that's horrendous. You know, I, I remember doing a show <clears throat> a few years ago 
maybe two years ago. And for some reason, sometimes when you're on the telly, you do just on some shows <clears throat> garner loads of criticism. And I was doing this show and I was getting all this sort of like, oh, Jay Humphreys, go back to kids' tellies, the worst thing to ever happen to sports broadcasting, blah, 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 blah. And then I got a message from Sue Barker, who I worked with right at the beginning of my career and I hosted Sports Personality with her. Mm. And she just sent me a message to say, I think you have established yourself as the best football presenter in the country. I'm sitting watching you wow. with Lance. That's her husband. And I just wanted to reach out and say, amazing job. And I thought for the hundreds of people sitting at home chucking a bit of bile my way, that one message from Sue Barker means a million times more than any of the others because she's someone that's done the job. Yeah. She's sat in the chair. She knows what's involved in making television. And so that's the other thing. You know, I, I suppose social media opens you up to criticism from anyone and everyone, but there's no validation in that, is there? You know, no. the validation for me comes from the people in my industry, the people whose opinions I genuinely respect. And there is a small handful of people who I will happily say, was that a bit shit? And if they say, yeah, it was actually, then I will I will listen to that and I'll take that on board. And that's something I've tried to do a little bit more during lockdown. Try to put a bit more positivity on the platform. Because when, when I like things now, I'm more inclined to go out mm. and tell that creator yeah, that I good. love that. We need more of that because yeah. it is it is a platform that only reverberates to the sound of negativity, I think, quite often. Um, and why don't we start just sharing the positive stuff? Yeah. You know, imagine if, <clears throat> I mean, one of the things I always say to my children before they go to school or before they go out, I always say, remember, be the greatest person in that room today. Off you go. And I think that that room should extend to social media. You know, why can't you be the most positive person on social media today, you know, and extend it out to the rest of your life and the rest of your world and just spread the spread positive messages. It, it can do no harm. And I think that's one of the things I particularly love about you on social media. You post these lovely sort of positive videos that are really, really inspiring. Thanks. And then you post these and then you get some kind of football chat back yeah. saying that, oh, you've got an agenda against Brighton or... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. It's one of the things I often say to, to people when I'm doing my job. I'm like, listen, this is no criticism of you or your football team. <laughs> but I genuinely don't care about you. <laughs> like I don't have an opinion on your team. I love Norwich and I like Peterborough United. That's the, the city that I was born in. But apart from that, I just enjoy the job. I enjoy the challenge of making television. And actually, a big part of my job is not, you know, when people say, oh, he doesn't know enough about football. Well, this, my job is 90% nothing to do with football. Yeah. My job is 90% the technical side of television, which no one ever sees. You know, they don't know that I'm hearing seven or eight voices down my earpiece and that I'm not using an auto cue and I'm trying to bring us on air and off air at a precise moment and I'm trying to get the best from the pundits and I'm thinking have all two or all three of them spoken enough and there was a story that I was told earlier on today by Rio Ferdinand and I know that he wants to talk about that so I've got to get that in yeah, and yeah. I need to there's a graphic coming up and the, you know all of those are the things that I'm thinking about mainly and allowing the pundits to be as good as possible but I think that the reason for that, right, is is the greatest thing about doing my job, which is that I present television that people really care about. Yeah. You know, like, are people emotionally invested in Saturday Night Takeaway? Yeah. Or something like that. I'm not sure they are. You know, do they? are they going to shout and scream at the television while watching Pointless? 
Possibly not. <laughs> but when they're watching a couple of football teams play against each other and they really love one of those teams like it's their family, then of course they're going to be emotionally invested. So they're going to listen mm. to every word you say, every little nuanced thing. Um, and the other thing that people often forget is that I'm there to be a conduit for debate and conversation. So we had this incident with Brighton and Morpay and, and I put the the, uh, the the line to Rear Ferdinand, was it a cowardly challenge? Because when Leno hurt himself, he had it, he was in the air with both hands on the football. Yeah. Was it was it cowardly? Um, it's a question, right? That then is translated in the eyes of the viewers as, oh my goodness, Jake Comfrey thinks it was a cowardly challenge. <laughs> He's on the gender against Brighton. It's not the case. No. It's simply not the case. Uh, in fact... I'd say that among the Premier League teams, Brighton are right up there with the teams I have the most respect for. I love the way they operate and what they do. But I do have to have debate and conversation, you know. It's, this, the problem is, in my job, if I have no opinion and don't drive any great conversation, then I'm a vanilla presenter that's yeah. really boring and no one wants to see on the television. As soon as you have an opinion and you do drive some debate and you do create a bit of controversy, well, then you get shouted down for doing so. So you can't win, therefore... You have to ignore it. And was that a cowardly challenge? That's just a good question anyway. Questions such as, what did you think of the first half, Rio? That's Mm, very vanilla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see them all the time when you look for them, those sorts of questions. Yeah. So, Jake, this is the podcast that takes a bit of a tea break from the world. It's a world where the phrase scream if you want to go faster isn't just a song by Jerry Halliwell. It's also (laughs) official government strategy for lifting lockdown. What a song. What a song. What a song. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jake, how has your lockdown been? My lockdown has actually been brilliant. And I think it's good for us to talk about the positive stuff in lockdown. The biggest positive for me is I've got two kids who are age four and seven, Florence and Sebastian. And we... I guess live the stereotypical life where we've got a boy and a girl who are separated by three or four years so if she has a friend round he has a friend round who's his age and it it tends to be a boy because they're his mates and she tends to be friends with girls so you've got the girls playing one place and the boys playing another place and she just so happens to love dance and gymnastics. So she goes off to her dance and gymnastics classes and Sebastian loves going to rugby class. So he goes and does rugby or he plays with me and he loves making dens in the garden. We play this game in the garden, like playing spies, where we basically run from bush to bush and he forgets that at 41, I can't run and dive under the bush like he does. And he's like, come on, get in, get in. I'm like, I literally cannot get in there. Um, but from always doing things apart, this shutdown has meant everything has to happen together because they haven't yeah. been going to school. We haven't had any friends over. They haven't been doing things separately and they have generated a bond between the two of them like I have never seen before. And it's been lovely to watch the way that they've sort of really become each other's best friends. And I'm so proud of the two of them for dealing with it in that way. Um, and then it's just been, I think it really has been a time to sit back and, and reflect and, and just be grateful. And I think, you know, it's a time where certainly, I, you know, I live out in the countryside, I live up in Norfolk, and I I feel so grateful to live in this part of the world now. You know, I think sometimes people laugh a bit when you live in Norfolk because they think it's a long way from anywhere and it's the graveyard of ambition and it's full of old people and all these other sort of cliches they throw at this county. But actually you realise that at a time like this, when you can't really leave the place you live, just how much we love where we live, feel very lucky. 
And now everyone's talking about moving to places like Norfolk. Yeah. You were in the first wave, Jake. I know we were here. We were the early, the early trendsetters. We we set the tone. But I think um, I think this is going to be brilliant for Norfolk actually, because I think that this summer, lots of people who would otherwise go abroad are going to mm. come and, and they're going to come and holiday in places like Norfolk and in Wales and in Cornwall. And I think you know the economy would need that big boost that this summer it's going to get. And I think that that's another sort of really good reminder from this shutdown is that we have got the most stunningly beautiful country that we get the chance to live in and we need to make more of it um and we you know we should talk about um, something i'm involved with a bit later but that's all about the environment and i think that one of the interesting elements of this shutdown i was reading is that we haven't even moved the dial a huge deal in terms of carbon emissions even with a global shutdown where people aren't flying and things like that so there has to be genuine fundamental change at government level and at big business level, the way that we operate. Um, and I think that it can start by people being less inclined to constantly travel the world, driving five miles to go to a meeting yeah. for 10 minutes, all of that sort of stuff. You know, let's, like you and me are doing now, you know, in the old in the old world, shall we say, you might have got in touch with me and said, listen, next time you're in London or can you pop to London on the train or mm. can you drive to London or whatever? And we probably would have got a little cab and we would have met somewhere. It's different now. We do it like this. It works perfectly well yeah. and it's better for the world. And this is the way that we need to be operating now. I think we just need to think a bit, a bit, a bit more about how we, how we operate. In those first few weeks of lockdown, obviously it was very scary. We, we started seeing businesses close. We saw yeah. all parts of society, entertainment, and of course, sport shut down. Obviously, mm. a large part of your living is talking about and producing shows about sport. When each sport started to close down, what did that feel like? Well, first of all, it felt like it was the right thing because we were on air doing the Europa League um, it was a Thursday evening and we got wind while we were live that Mikel Arteta had tested positive for coronavirus. Mm. And I'm good friends with Frank Lampard and he messaged me at the same time to say, you know, don't share it, but Callum Hudson-Odoi has got coronavirus and no one's at work and we've yeah. de-cleaned Cobham. And at that point, I said to the producer, listen, the Premier League isn't happening this weekend. And we'd actually been covering two Europa League games, both of which were behind closed doors. And we were saying at that time, live on air, this just simply doesn't work. Football behind closed doors. Yeah. I mean, now everyone's mindset has changed to such an extent that we're just glad to have some football back on the television. And I think it isn't the product it was, but all the broadcasters have done everything they can with the, with the sort of fake crowd noise and the, the sort of fan wall, watching fans celebrate to try and to try and turn it into a little bit more of what it was. But it certainly felt like the right thing at that time. Um, it was a very scary time. You know, one of the things that people know me for as being a TV presenter, but they perhaps don't know that I also run a production company, which yeah. is called Whisper. We've got about 80 staff um, and our job primarily is to produce live sports content. We're the biggest provider of sports highlights to the terrestrial channels mm. in the UK. So we do a lot of that sort of stuff and we effectively lost all our income overnight. Yeah. Now, when the world is operating in the normal way, it is brilliant to have a nice big shiny office and 80 members of staff and loads of infrastructure and loads of edit suites and loads of outgoings because it's a sign of your success and your continued growth. Literally overnight, the tap was switched off. And so mm. we then had to have some sort of really difficult conversations actually um, at the business about how we how we survive this. And that's lit almost overnight. I know people think, oh, how can you suddenly have a business that overnight is struggling? Well, 
when you've got that amount of stuff, you have hundreds of thousands of pounds a month overheads. Yeah. So even if you've been sensible, which we had been and had, you know, a good amount of finance in the bank, which we did have, it was still a situation where we after a few months would, would, would be struggling. And we wanted to make sure the business was still going to be alive for all of our staff so we could fulfill all the contracts that we still have. So, for example, we were or we will be producing the Paralympics. Yeah. It was going to be happening this summer. It will happen next summer. We had to make sure we still had a business so that we could produce that at the end of it. So it was about making the right decision. But also the ethos of our business has always been about trying to do the right thing. So remarkably, straight away the ceo a guy called sunil patel uh for forgave all his salary to wow. members of staff that were going to be struggling through the coronavirus so he didn't earn a penny for the whole of the shutdown um and then i i took a a pot of my own cash and i put that aside and i sent a message to every member of the team at, at whisper and said look if and not just you personally but if any member of your family or any sort of anyone close to you is really struggling financially at this time then there's a pot of money pick up the phone talk to me and we'll have a proper discussion about it and then we hugely ramped up the mental health services that we offer to all of our staff to mm. make sure that anyone that was going to be going through a difficult period during the shutdown had help and i think that you you have to judge people and judge businesses um on the decisions they make at times like this rather than when times are good and i'm really proud actually that you know we sit here today and sport is starting to go again and on reflection it's probably been a positive time for our company because we were providers of a huge amount of live and highlights of sport but we didn't produce any of our or much of our own original content. Yeah. So while the shutdown was on, what did we do? We diverted all our attention and all our energy into creating new content. And we've, we now come out the other side with a really strong non-live sports arm to the business. So it's all about trying to find the positives. And I know that many businesses haven't been as fortunate as us um, and, have, and have struggled, but I'm, I'm really proud of the way that you know, every, every single member of the team responded. Yeah. And as you say, you, you have been sort of producing all these different shows yeah. as a presenter of, you know, more than 20 years as a challenge. What has that been like from home? Yeah. Horrendous. <laughs> challenge horrendous because as a presenter, and you'll know this with, with doing this, I mean, for people that are sort of listening, you and me are on FaceTime, not yeah. because you're using the video, but because it's weird to have a conversation like this, quite mm. a sort of intimate conversation without seeing each other, right? It yeah. just takes away a whole element of it. And the job of being a presenter is, is, I believe, is all about emotion. It's about tapping into the emotion of the event, the emotion of the people who are in the room. It's about that kind of visceral ability to ask the questions that people at home want asking and actually sometimes to ask really hard questions. But to do that, you need to be able to look people in the eye and have a really good personal relationship with people and then suddenly like i was totally cut off from everyone and bt did their very best they came and they put a satellite in the back garden and i've got a, a little outbuilding which we turned into a mini studio but i was using my mobile phone as my earpiece which meant there was a huge delay trying to connect me to everybody else we had the producer in his house the director in his house the vision mixer in their house the technical and production teams all in their own homes and we were only operating over the mobile phone network yeah that's something that's never been done before and you know you actually this shutdown has been amazing for pushing the boundaries of technology and realizing that there are new ways of working and new ways of doing things but 
it meant that I wasn't able to be in the same room as those people and I couldn't feed off their laughter or feed off what they were saying to me because everything was mm. delayed by a few seconds. And then I'm normally sitting in a room with two or three pundits to my left or my right, two or three cameramen, um, a couple of other members of crew, uh, a makeup person. I've got 40,000 people outside the window. I'm looking <laughs> what's going on. I'm reacting to the environment and suddenly it is silence. And I'm trying to do live television. I'm trying to bring some humor and some personality and some life because at that time I felt people needed it. And it was really, really quiet. And the other thing is because technically we were right on the very edge. I mean, I was, we, I had a monitor in front of me with the pundits on and I'd be sitting doing a link or something. I'd literally be about to speak to Peter Crouch. And as I'm about to ask a question, his screen goes black and I'm looking thinking, ah, and then half a second later, I'm hearing the producer go, okay, yeah, we've lost Peter Crouch. And I'm almost getting to my question to Peter. <laughs> so I'm suddenly thinking, ah, oh, what do I do? What do I do? But because of the delay, there's three or four seconds for the producer, although he's already telling me what to do, I'm not getting it for a, a little while. So I'm yeah. thinking, quick, quick, quick. So I'm sort of <laughs> and the problem is when you're technically on the absolute edge like that, it leaves you in a position where I suppose you don't normally think about that. So all your, what I call spare capacity can go into making the show great. It can be going into the extra little fine details that just make it a, a bit more special. Whereas that goes out the window and you are kind of just trying to get through the show effectively. So it was difficult, but kind of a nice challenge at the same time. You know, I think that all of us should reflect on this as a period where, um, we've shown that actually we can adapt and that we are smart people and by putting together we can still create. And a lot of people are sort of taking all of these learnings into the new world and hopefully yeah. more moving forward. Jake, are you someone who's taking these new ways of working moving forward? I mean, presumably you're just quite happy to get back into the studio, right? Yeah, I'm pleased to get back into a studio, but I think that television has changed probably forever. Mm. I've, you know, tradition. when I first started on Formula One, we would go to a Grand Prix with 70 or 80 members of staff. Now that's 70 or 80 seats on a plane, 70 or 80 hotel rooms, uh, 10 or 15 cars driving in and out of the circuit. And we were doing that at 20 races a year. What's that doing for the world in all honesty? Yeah. I think, um, and we've done similar with football, but what's called remote production is now going to be the future. So I can absolutely see a day where I go to a Premier League football game with my two pundits, um, the cameramen and the floor manager and maybe a makeup artist, but everybody else, the whole swathe of VT producers and the, the analysts who are rewinding and playing in the footage and the producers and the directors, all of them are back at base, near their houses, less travel, less people. So that's been, I think, a big change in, in the world of broadcasting. But also, I think that when it comes to communication, it's changed for television, but it's changed for everyone. So traditionally, we go, right, uh, Liverpool can win the league on Thursday night. So um, what guests can we get? And we're immediately thinking, right, who's near London? Who can get to the studios? Blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, we've seen that that is now a complete irrelevance. So we're now talking about guests for Thursday for the Liverpool game if they win the league. Well, it simply does not matter where they are because yeah. we just get them on a bit of technology like this, you know, FaceTime or Zoom or whatever the other technology is that you want to use. And that's it. You see them. And you can see them in South America. You can see them in Australia. You can see, And the great thing is the, the tech companies that have produced this kind of technology that, that we're using today – They've worked so hard yeah. to make sure there's no lag. We can actually have a proper conversation like you and I are having now, and it really is it really is not an issue. So I think the global shutdown has basically made the world smaller than it's ever been before, 
it's made us strangely closer than we've ever been before, despite the fact that we're all having to stay apart. And I, I kind of, part of me worries about the world and worries about the future, which I guess is natural when you're a parent and you see all of the issues in the world and you've got young kids. But actually, I think that's, I think that technology is going to be what saves us. I really do believe that it, it will be changing the world constantly. And what you and I come to think now is this modern technology in three or four years, we will laugh and, and we won't be able to sort of comprehend that we thought this was cool. And because you have still been working all of this, have you been pulled into any of the other lockdown trends? Are you someone who won't be allowed on the next series of Celebrity Bake Off because you've now mastered all forms of baking? Yeah, we have been pulled into it. Do you know what? It's funny, isn't it, how you just do things that, you, that you've never done before. So yeah. we started getting my daughter to, to cook a, a meal every week because we suddenly had the time to sit there and to plan it and do it. And I'll tell you, my biggest bugbear, there's two of them. Number one, people who've said, oh, I've been so bored yeah doing lockdown i really do struggle with that because i think that i know it's been really difficult for a lot of people and loneliness has been an issue but what you have to do if you're bored during lockdown is you have to do all the things you've always dreamed of doing even if you're struggling to leave the house you know the amount of information available in books or on the internet or something you've always wanted to achieve i think you've got to go and you've got to try and you've got to try and find that and you've got to grasp that and also a number of people that are saying oh just do i'm so oh, hate it i just want to get back to work basically what you're saying is the best part of your life is your job like that needs some fundamental looking at yeah. The fact that, you know, you just, you can't wait to get out of the house. A couple of people said to me, I can't wait to get out of the house, away from the family and get back to work. And I'm like, I can't believe that's what you said. <laughs> so I really hope that it's kind of helped people to redress the balance a little bit in terms of that. But when it comes to sort of lockdown skills, me and my wife are getting a little bit older, right? We, I'm in my 40s. She's not far off. We have become obsessed with the garden. Like Monty Don on Garden as well. We both shed a tear when Monty Don's dog passed away. And I was thinking, I'm thinking a few years ago, I didn't even know who Monty Don was, let alone who Monty Don's dog was. How life, how life comes at you fast, eh? And how, how have you dealt with homeschooling? Because I, I have a theory about former children's TV presenters, as you've rightly said that yeah, you are, yeah. is that basically as a kid, you're like our favourite teachers. So surely that transitions into parenthood and therefore homeschooling. <laughs> I love that. I hadn't thought of it like that. But um, I, I actually, do you know what? I am, my wife and I are very different. I am incredibly relaxed yeah. about schooling to the point of frustration for her. So when we go for parents' evenings, bearing in mind how young our children are, I literally don't care where they are in the class in terms of their maths ability or their reading or mm. writing ability. And my wife is very different and she's, she comes from a family where um, academia is considered you know, right, up the, right up there. All I want to know is, are they happy? Yeah. Are, they, are they good children? Do they relate well to other kids in the class? Do they enjoy themselves? When someone falls over, are they the first one to go and pick them up? That, that sort of stuff, that's life skills, to me is a million times more important because I think that's what will get you on in this world. You know, um, so actually, I, I must confess that our son, we we basically spent more time outside with him, getting yeah. him gardening. And so we just spent all the time outside with the dog and he was helping us garden and clearing out the chickens. Those sort of like little jobs, I think, are more important than anything else, really. But in terms of my children's BBC skills, mate, you should see it. Any, any kids party that I go to, I know exactly what to do. I'm right there. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've, I do actually... 
I find it easy. You know, I think my wife struggles a little bit, you know, day to day sitting there trying to get my daughter to do work. But I actually do like it. And I think it probably it's a fair point actually that all I was on children's BBC for like eight years. I I, I just find it easy, you know, I just I love it. And it's probably the skills I picked up dressed as a pink lobster, <laughs> running around the Blue Peter Garden, popping balloons filled with foam, all those years ago that, that me and I I was able to homeschool effectively twenty years later. So we are in transition at the moment so much so that yeah. i might need to rename this podcast which is obviously annoying but lockdown yeah, what would you do what is the plan for i that? don't know i don't know i um what about just a post quarantine podcast yeah. and then that sounds good i mean that, oh, i just have to yeah. put the word post in front of it that's that's the kind of creative thinking i need as well i like the yeah, low yeah, levels be five grand <laughs> but it's st- lockdown and quarantine is starting to lift now jake how yeah. how do you feel about that I know that there is this sort of constant tug of war between getting the economy moving and, and looking after people who are struggling because they're in lockdown and then making sure we save people's lives. And I suppose I, st- I still come back to the fact that we have to trust the people that are making the decisions, that they are making the right decisions for the right reasons. Um, and I do think that we must be we must be really sensitive to the fact that tens of thousands of people have died from coronavirus and it hasn't it hasn't gone away yeah getting people moving again it feels like slowly but surely it's the right thing to do but we have to do it with absolute caution and i just i would just say that as soon as we either have a a second spike or this so-called r rating starts to increase again i just hope that people are going to be sensible enough to pull back straight away and and allow it to to drop down again and i i have a feeling that we have to find a, a new a new sort of way forwards really because i don't think that this is going to go away anytime mm. soon you know we people talk about finding a, a vaccine well we might never find a vaccine we might live with coronavirus in our midst for an extremely long time so we have to try and find a sensible way without risking people's lives there are people who the loneliness is doing really awful things to their mental health and i think we have to remember those people and look after them as well but we do sensible ways. So it's not just a case of shackles off, off we go, party time, everyone piling in together and having fun. It's about a very slow process of of leaving quarantine um, and an absolute acceptance that if you get told, then we then we go we go back into it again. And and I suppose that it's a case of just watching other European countries now, isn't it, and seeing mm. where they're at. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, it's great to see businesses reopen. I think that's a really positive thing. But I yeah. I don't know, because I, I have quite enjoyed a lot of things about lockdown. Like I've been able to do a lot more things that I haven't like, I wouldn't have been able to do, sort of chained to an office. Even even just now, yeah. being able to do this. But you know what, though, you have to keep those mm. things. I think that is my overriding message for people. Is is I know it sounds like a sort of stupid school exercise, but almost sit down and say to yourself, right, what are the things I've enjoyed during lockdown? How can I go about my life after lockdown, but still keep these things? Yeah, here? and it's not easy because a lot of it involves being at home. But you just need to make sure that the things you've really enjoyed doing while you've been at home, you still keep when you are at home and you don't just allow yourself to slip into the old world and i really hope that i really hope during this time there are people lots of people who've always had this kind of little entrepreneurial fire burning inside them but life has just got in the way of that and they finally have the chance to sit down spend a bit of time thinking about what they really want to achieve and they go right i'm going to make this happen i'm going to go and do this and that lockdown for a lot of people has a 
as a positive outcome. I really, really hope that's the case. I can't wait to meet people and speak to people who in three or four years say, do you know what, this business was born out of me being trapped in the house. This business was born out of lockdown. This business was born out of the inspiration I saw from the fact that we realize how fragile the world is and that we we think that we're so sort of strong and stable, but actually it only takes one virus like this to completely knock us off our axis. And so therefore I decided to do this and I was brave enough to do it because the biggest the biggest mistake people can make is making no decision at all. I could have done this or I wish I'd done that. Is you gotta do it. You have to go and do it. And one thing that is happening, in fact, today as this podcast comes out is you have teamed up mm. with a teenage entrepreneur on a new business. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, I don't know how much you know about my time at school, but I wasn't great. So I got an, an E, an N and a U for my three A-levels. And I had to go back to school and redo my exams. And it was awkward because it was a school where my mum worked and all my mates went off around the world, traveling and doing exciting things. And I was back at school. Um, so I went to a local TV channel called Rapture TV who offered me the chance to do some work experience. And from then on, my entire career has been built on people taking a chance on someone who otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity. So I was offered a presenting job there by a guy called Roger Fount. I was then offered um, uh, some reporting jobs for Children's BBC by a lady called Amanda Gabitas. I was then given the job of hosting Children's BBC by a man called Paul Smith. And I was then given the job of hosting bits and pieces of sport by a guy called Niall Sloan. And then I was given the job of hosting Sports Personality of the Year by a man called Roger Mosey. And then Roger and Niall together offered me the job of hosting Formula One, where I was helped out hugely by a guy called Mark Wilkie. And then there was a man called Simon Green who took a risk on me and took me from Formula One and gave me the job at BT Sport. And the reason why I remember every single one of those names stretching back 20 years is because all of them took a chance on a guy who traditionally didn't have what you would necessarily think they need to do the job you were asking them to do. So I wasn't a trained sports journalist when I got the job on Formula One. I hadn't done years of football reporting when I joined BT Sport. I hadn't gone to acting college or drama school or studied media before I got a job on Children's BBC. I was an A-level failure before I got a job on Rapture Television. Yet these people still gave me an opportunity. And I'm so passionate about taking people, carrying them along, and I suppose paying it forwards basically. So, so a couple of years ago, I set up a scholarship program at the UEA, which is the university here in, in Norwich, University of East Anglia. It involves the university finding someone who wants to study media studies, but they can't because financially they simply can't afford it. And I will give them thousands of pounds every year towards their studies for the full three years they're at the UEA for them to complete the course. And I'll do that every single year for a student. So at any one time, there's three students that I'm helping to go through the university. And that was my first step towards paying it back. And then while I was at the university, I met a guy called George Bailey, who is 19 years old. And again, he needs someone to take a chance mm. on him because he's not got an entrepreneurial track record. He's never set up a business before. He He's just a guy with a great idea. And his great idea is changing, completely changing the eyewear industry. So at the moment, 9 million pairs of sunglasses or glasses are created from virgin plastic, from fresh plastic, mm. just in the wow. UK every single year. And it's awful for the environment. It's out of date. It's just something that hasn't been thought about. And George has created a system whereby he, we take um, the fishing nets out of the sea and plastic from landfill. We turn it back into the original product. 
then we turn it into sunglasses and we turn it into glasses oh. and they're beautifully designed by proper eyewear designers and they're handcrafted in Italy by an artisan eyewear company and then they're delivered to people carbon neutrally with a recycled case and a recycled cloth and we're saying it's planet positive so if you buy some eyewear from coral eyewear which is the name mm. of the business then you're actually actively helping the environment you're taking plastic out of the ocean and at no cost environment that plastic is being turned into eyewear which is delivered to your door and where they're kind of eternally recycled as well so as soon as you finish with that pair of sunglasses or eyewear or fashions change send them back to us we can then turn them back into the original plastic and make them back into a new pair of glasses and they'll get a discount off the next pair of recycled eyewear i just think it's an amazing idea it there are millions of people around the world every day who go and get fresh eyewear. And at the moment, the cost of the environment is huge. And so I'm supporting George. I've become part of Coral Eyewear and our Kickstarter campaign to bring people along on the journey with us begins today. You know it's a good idea because the first time you talk about it, you just think, why yeah. Why have we been doing this all the time? I know. Well, you know what? I mean, I had exactly the same thought. He said, look, I've got this thing, Coral Eyewear. I'd love it if you would get involved. I think it's brilliant. And I thought exactly the same as you. I went, well, of course, this is already happening somewhere. So it's probably a waste of your time and my time. And I was in London for a load of meetings. And I thought, right, I'm going to go right now to the first six or seven eyewear places that I find. Now, I wasn't in some tiny little village somewhere. I was in the west end of London. I was in the place where if you're going to find sustainable recycled eyewear, like that's where you're going to find it. So I walked up and down Carnaby Street. I walked through Soho. I walked along Oxford Street. I walked on Regent Street. And I must have gone to eight or nine eyewear Mm. sellers. And I walked in and said, hi, can you show me your recycled range? And they just looked at me blank. Okay, have you got any, like, um, sort of, like, um, not necessarily recycled, but some sort of green range, something like that, something that's kind of got the sustainability factor? And every single placement, we've got nothing like that. And then I was straight on the phone to George. I said, I don't believe this. We need to get this going. And we have. So Coral Eyewear is, is, a, is a genuine thing as of today. I'm really, really excited. And people can find it by going to uh, the Kickstarter website. Uh, we'll put the link in the bio, but... I yeah, thank you. I mean, I'm a, I'm a glasses wearer, and I like to think that I'm pretty sustainable. That I try and do my bit, but it, it's something that I'd never ever thought about. Yeah. So you'd never even had that conversation with your optician, right? No, no, no. And I don't know how many how many pairs of eyewear have you got? How many sunglasses and glasses? Oh, a lot, a lot. There you go. Yeah. How can it not be? And and the other thing that I think is really important, and I said this to George, I said, look, people who care about the planet are going to be on board with us here. What I think is really important is we reach people that don't really care about the Mm. planet, but they want to look good. And so that's why we had to make sure that these were proper, original, bespoke designer frames. They're handcrafted in this tiny little artisan factory in Italy, and they're they're spun at the end, so they just look incredible, and they're polished by hand. So people are not only going to be helping the environment, but they're going to look awesome at the same time. Um, And we we have broken the business down to the minutest of details to make sure that every area that we can is as green as, 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 as possible. And we'll continue to push the boundary on that as much as we possibly can because I'm absolutely determined determined that every time someone buys uh, um, something from us, it actively helps the planet. Otherwise, it's basically, there's no point really. You know, We're just adding to the harm. 
And I mean, the conversation around the environment seems to have disappeared a little bit during lockdown. So it's great that these kind of ventures are coming yeah. because we can start to talk about that again. It's an, and it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because the damage we're doing to the environment and the future for the environment is just as huge as a short term global pandemic like this. And Greta Thunberg was very clear, wasn't it? she said the other day, you know, we need to be treating the environment in the same way that we're that we're treating this global pandemic. We need to understand that, you know, it is just as serious for our planet. And um, it does, you're absolutely right. It does feel like the conversation around the planet has kind of melted away somewhat, um, which is exactly what will happen to the planet if we carry on the way we are. We just have to talk about football, obviously. Of course. Who's your team? It's Liverpool. It's Liverpool. Oh, man. I was very tempted to say, Jake, this podcast potentially go out after Liverpool have won the league. But I think I'm too nervous to kind of get your opinion on Liverpool winning the league. I think I think it feels like I jinx it. Well, should I give it to you without you asking the question then? Yeah, sure. Okay, so, and you're quite, you're cool with saying when we're recording this and stuff. For oh, yeah, yeah, that's not a problem. This is now Tuesday morning. Liverpool play tomorrow evening. Wednesday, Crystal Palace, they will win that game. And it will then leave Chelsea to play Manchester City on Thursday. Now, Manchester City scored a hat full of goals last night against Burnley. But we're talking about a very different opposition. And we're talking about playing a game on a Wednesday and a Thursday. And I think that Manchester City will draw with Chelsea on Thursday night. And Liverpool will be crowned champions you, know, you can't even bear to consider it. That's good. You're sitting there going, oh, listen, man, you've won the league. There's no jinxing to be done. Like, it's won. Nothing, nothing can stop it. It's done. I, I worry now that no? this clip will be played to me over and over and over again by my Manchester United friends who go, oh, do you remember when Jake, <laughs> do you remember when Jake said that and they didn't win? Nah. Right, you watch Thursday night. Thursday night, I'll send you a text message and I will say congratulations <laughs> on it. So football obviously has come back. And I genuinely thought during lockdown, yeah. I, 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 it was the last thing on my mind. But then it returned and I was immediately obsessed all over again. Yeah. How do you think the return has gone down? It's been strange, hasn't it? Because there's no doubt the product is different. I mean, in even in the championship, the first weekend of the championship, there was one home mm. win which is crazy. You know, that's just not the way that football tends to work. Um, and I think the fact in the Premier League, pretty much every game has been nil-nil at half-time shows that we perhaps underestimated just what the lockdown has done to the players and how how strange this environment is. And I, and I think we have to understand, you know, the first game I saw players coming out of the tunnel at Aston Villa and there was people in full PPE, yeah. you know, the proper white sort of forensic suits and all that sort of stuff. And if you or I turned up to work and there was people two yards fully dressed in PPE, yeah. it absolutely would have an effect. So I think sometimes we're guilty of thinking that footballers, because they play football, they're not they're not human beings. And and we've seen, I think, you know, with the likes of Troy Deeney speaking out and being very honest, they've said, actually, I'm not sure about this. And I think we've been reminded that they are they are definitely, you know, taking mm. a risk really to to bring some entertainment back. But I think that the the measures that the Premier League have taken have been the right ones. I think that um, they've made it as safe as they can inside the stadiums, and the reaction from people at home has been overwhelming. Thank goodness I can finally sit and watch some football again. And you know that old phrase, you don't know what you've got till it's yeah. gone. It feels like that with football. Um, I think that we didn't maybe understand just how 
sort of central football is the fabric of our society. I think we perhaps also have taken our eyes off the fact that football fans are central to the quality of the product. And I think we always thought it was about a great striker. It was about an amazing team of, you know, multicultural people from all these different countries bringing their beautiful skills to the English shores and impressing us with their amazing skills and their amazing football talent. But even that matters a lot less when the stadiums are empty. So it's almost like the fans put everything into context for us. An amazing goal is a far less amazing goal when there isn't 60,000 people on their feet looking at it in absolute disbelief. The thrill that a player gets when he does something amazing is far less of a thrill when he's only got 10 teammates to congratulate him rather than tens of thousands of people in the stands. But despite all that, football needed to return. Mm. I think it's been great for everyone um, and it was the right thing. And you know, while we're talking about football, I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of the fact that the role of the footballer, I think, has changed during lockdown as well. It was only the, the beginning of lockdown that everyone, you know, not helped by Matt Hancock's quote about it's time that footballers did yeah. a bit, conveniently forgetting that almost half of their inordinate salary is paid across in tax automatically anyway. Um, he said footballers need to do their bit. He hadn't taken into account that they were actively having these conversations. They were talking about doing their bit. And Raheem Sterling, a couple of years ago, showed us the impact you can have if you're a footballer and you want to make your voice heard when he spoke about racism. And then the work that the likes of Jordan Henderson did for Players Together was amazing. But without doubt, the standout has been Marcus Rashford. And it was only a few years ago that I was um, talking to Jermaine Genus and he was saying when he was a player, if you didn't like the way you were portrayed in the media, you basically just stopped doing interviews. There was no other option. You didn't have anything. You didn't have your own voice. You didn't have your own platform. All you did was say, well, I don't like the way I'm being reported, so I'm not going to do any interviews. Whereas social media has totally transformed the landscape for footballers. It's finally given them a voice and we're actually seeing that they are socially aware that they are responsible that they are smart young men and marcus rashford leading the way has has changed people's opinions about him about footballers um and i think it's i think it's brilliant it shows that their role now is very different i think a few years ago exactly to your point footballers would just stop doing interviews wouldn't they if they they got bad press i think for a number of years raheem sterling wouldn't do anything because all the negative stuff that he would get we saw those front pages but then i think Mm. he put out a first person piece online which talked about his mum and how he'd helped her and just his life in general and the abuse he got and then that started to change and then we saw that in gareth southgate's england team where they started talking more about mental health there has been a real change hasn't there there's been an absolutely there's been a real change and a a real change for the better and i think it makes everyone take notice. I remember when the first sort of example I saw of a player really speaking out was when Raheem Jimmy put the post up on his Instagram comparing the headlines that white footballers and black footballers mm. got for doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was embarrassed because I hadn't even spotted it. I mean, that brings us on to the whole conversation of white privilege. My white privilege meant that I hadn't even seen that there was this issue. I'd kind of just read the headlines and accepted them for what they were. Um, and that was a that was a fundamental change. And you're totally right. You know, I mean, as I say, Jermaine Genus, he felt some of the reporting around his time when he was at Newcastle had racist undertones. So he just said, right, I'm not, I'm not doing any media. He wasn't able to call out what he saw and say, listen, guys, this has happened because he had no platform. And that's where, for all of the negatives around social media, things like this, you know, it launched the Me Too movement, of course. Um, That's why 
it can do so much good if it's used in the right way. And I just wish that all of us would think it's almost like we see it as a platform for negativity. Yeah. And if only we started to see it as a platform for positive stuff, I think we'd be amazed by, by what we could achieve. Oh, by the way, can I just say, when I talk about that, and people go, yeah, yeah, you're right. They all just carry on as they were. We all can make a difference. Imagine if all, everyone listening to this now, including you and me, said, right, I'm going to make a rule for the next month. I'm only going to share positive stuff on my social media accounts and see what the impact is. And that's the thing. I think all too often people don't take responsibility themselves. They're happy for others to take responsibility or happy to talk about it or happy to say this should be happening. But why don't we just do it ourselves? Why don't everyone listen to this say, yeah, you know what, you're right. It starts with me. So from now on, nothing but positivity is going to be on my social media channels. Let's see. Let's see what the outcome is. I mean, that would be amazing. Do you think that's possible? Do you think that we can get people to do that? I certainly think that we can get people to do it in terms of the the listeners to this pod. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, if they if they do. But part of the issue, I think, with people is that sometimes they kind of, they wait for everyone else to do it. But why don't we be the ones that do it? And I talk quite often on, on my podcast about fault versus responsibility. People will often blame something else. They'll be, oh, I can't do it because it's this person's fault or it's the fault of this or the fault of that. Why don't you just take responsibility? So no, no blame for why you've tweeted or shared certain stuff in the past. No excuse for why you're going to carry on doing that. Just complete and utter responsibility that from today, going forwards, you're going to be positive. Tell you what, I'm going to do it myself. If you see any negative stuff from me on my social accounts, you tell me, all right? Definitely, definitely. Jake, we have to talk about your own podcast because that launched, mm. I think, just just before lockdown. I think yeah. you probably recorded all the episodes, I think, before it launched. Yeah, we did one. We did one episode over Zoom, which, to be honest, I didn't I didn't really like because I, I love being in the room with people, as I've already said, and sort of feeding off their energy. But, yeah, we, we had 11 episodes, and the one with Holly Tucker, who mm. created NotOnTheHighStreet.com, was the only was the only episode that we recorded um, post, post-lockdown. post It's called The High Performance Podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about mm. it and what and how it all came about? Sure, I can, yeah. Um, so I've always wanted to work in live sports, not because I really desperately cared who won a Grand Prix or that I now desperately care who wins a game of football. As I've said to you already, I don't really care. But what I love is seeing high-performing individuals compete on a football field, spending time with high-performing individuals in the studio who got to the absolute top of their game as footballers and represented their country. And I think all too often we don't actually understand just what it takes to make that kind of sacrifice. So the number of times that I see people saying, uh, you know, Wayne Rooney doesn't care. Well, Wayne Rooney is in the gym Mm. every minute of every day um, and he absolutely does care. Um, And 99% of people who are watching professional footballers on the television might struggle to even do for one day what those players are doing day after day after day and they're having to deal with criticism from the stands and on social media and beating against brilliant players alongside to try and be the best. And I think it's a fascinating mindset that that, uh, high-achieving individuals, not just sports people, can bring us. So that's really why I do the job I do. And I've always wanted to talk more about the high-performance side of life because when I was growing up and when I was doing my A-levels not very well and when I first started out in kids TV I've always wanted to do more than just be a TV Mm. presenter but I used to look at people who were running and owning football clubs or running Formula 1 teams or had built their own business or who were entrepreneurial or who were millionaires or billionaires and I genuinely thought these people know a secret that I don't know 
So no matter how hard I work, I'm never going to get where they are. And then I got a job in Formula One. So suddenly I was around these business people and these millionaires and these self-made success stories and these drivers and these team principals. And then I moved into football. And again, I was around owners and players and chairmen. And I started just asking everyone, like, what was your story? How did you how did you get here? What were the what were the secrets? What were the tricks? And almost to a man or woman, they said to me, I just did it. Yeah. And that was the absolute revelation for me. There was no secret to success. It's as simple as wanting to do it. And there's a great inspirational speaker called Inky Johnson. And he was uh, he was a guy who grew up in a difficult household. He had no money and he wanted to be an NFL player. And he got to within one game of playing in the NFL. And if he'd just finished that one game, the draft was happening after that. He would have been drafted to an NFL team multi-million pound contract straight away, life changed for him and his family. And he got a huge, devastating injury in that final mm. game, paralyzed down one side, never got to the NFL. Now he's an inspirational speaker. And he speaks about from the day he wanted to be in the NFL to the day that he dealt with his new ability. He talks about imposing your will. And he says, impose your will. Whatever it is you want to do, whatever your dream is, impose your will on that dream. In other words, just bloody make it happen yeah. and accept anything else other than making it happen and imposing your will. And that's really where the podcast came from. I wanted to share what I'd learned from all these people. And the first guest I really wanted on was a guy called Stephen Bartlett. And again, self-made, he was stealing pizzas in Manchester to feed himself a few years yeah. ago. And now he runs a company called Social Chain, which is probably worth a few hundred million pounds. But he said something really interesting on the podcast. Um, Damien Hughes, who's my co-host, he's a, he's a professor and an author. And he said, he said to Stephen, he said, um, how, how did you know that you could do all this? Or why did you think you could do all this? And Stephen's answer was really simple. He said, because I've always believed I can. And that really is the crux of this podcast. It's about listening to people who've achieved great things and just tapping into um, their disciplines, their mindset, their self-belief, their relentlessness, their attacking the big dream one step at a time, dealing with disappointment, accepting failure, recovering from failure. It's all the things that you or I or anyone listening to the podcast can take into our own lives. And it's just, we've spoken a lot about positivity in this mm. interview. It's just simply a positive listening experience. And I love it when I get messages on social media from people saying, I've always wanted to do something. I listen to your podcast. I'm finally doing it. And I've been, uh, I've been so delighted with the reaction. And um, series two starts on Monday, the 6th, of, 6th of July. One of the things I love about the podcast so much is it almost feels like the guests are learning stuff about themselves as well. Just when they hear the questions, they go, oh, yeah, I th yeah, I did do that. I did mm. do that. And that's a really, really nice thing. And you've had some incredible guests, Tom Daly, Rio Ferdinand, Kelly Holmes, and of course, Holly Tucker, as you mentioned. Yeah. Who would you love to get on the show? Um, well... Michael Johnson, obviously, would be a little bit of a pipe dream yeah. for me. I'd love Dr. Dre <laughs> on the program. Um, do you know what? I th what's lovely is I think that everyone has a story mm. to tell. And that and that's really why I'm I'm hugely open to, to the sort of diversity of guests. I mean, I'll, I'll give you um, a little exclusive of a couple of guests to show you the diversity of who we've got on Series 2. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, the Manchester United boss, is on the podcast oh, wow. because he listened to it and got in touch with us and said, I want to be on your podcast, which was kind of like a mind blowing moment for us. And I think when you say they learn stuff about themselves along the way, I think you're right. And I think 
Ollie doesn't have those sorts of interviews or conversations very often. He's normally talking about formations and four four two and dropping this player and picking this player, you know, and it's probably quite boring for mm. him. So to have this conversation was really good. And then to give you an idea of the totally other end of the spectrum, a guy called Marcelino Sambe, who is a principal dancer with the Royal Ballet in London. And people might think high performance and ballet. When you when you hear the interview, it's probably my favorite ever interview that I've done in my entire wow. life. The conversation is remarkable. And he actually talks about the fact that away from the stage, these dancers at the Royal Ballet are operating like professional sports people. That is the level at which they're pushing themselves. Um, and his story is stunning. You know, he is only the second black principal dancer ever to be given that role at the Royal Ballet. Um, he's openly gay and he said that you know that's also an issue uh, traditionally has been an issue in the ballet world because they generally wanted kind of red-blooded straight males to play the very male role in a ballet and so he feels that over the years he's had to fight against that stereotype and it's a battle that he's winning um and he also comes from a really uh, difficult part of Portugal his father died when he was eight wow. years old his mother couldn't look after him and he went into foster care so Against all of those barriers, there he is competing at the greatest ballet in the world as their best ballet dancer. And the story and the inspiration behind getting there is something that I would love everyone to hear. Jake, before I let you go, we just have to talk a little yeah. bit about TV. Everyone's been watching a lot during lockdown. What have you? Yeah. What have you been watching? Cheers, Creek. Oh my goodness, have you watched it? I've watched. Mm, I've watched a little bit. I've. You don't like I've not it. got into. No, it. Really? I'm. Yeah, I think I'm the leave. only one who hasn't yeah. gone to Shit's Creek. Shit's Creek's amazing. Me and my wife are now obsessed with Daniel Levy. We're like on his Instagram <laughs> all the time. And what I love about that is that they've just created something that has made a real impact right around yeah. the world. And the lovely thing is, it started really small. So when they were recording the first, second and third seasons, it hadn't really made much of an impact. And the only time that they really were successful was when they were recording the final season, which they'd already written. Mm. So the success in no way sort of tarnished the, the, the comedy or tarnished the drama. And I think that's really nice. It's kind of super innocent. It's a lovely bit of escapism, but actually it has really powerful things to say about gay relationships in the modern world. And it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant series. Um, what else are we enjoying at the moment? Well, we really like The Politician. Do you know The Politician with Ben Platt? Just come back for a second second yeah. season, which is cool. Um, it's weird, actually. We very rarely watch now, like traditional TV. That We used to go... BBC One, BBC Two, ITV Four, Channel Five. Mm, let's look at the rest of the Sky channels. Now, every single time, Netflix, mm, Amazon. Mm, should we see what's on normal telly? Mm, it's really strange how it's completely transformed our thinking. You know, I mean, our children basically don't even watch Amazon and Netflix; they only watch YouTube. There's the future for you. <laughs> and you're such a busy man. Do you have time to read or listen to podcasts? Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, Secret Diary of a CEO is a podcast that. I really, I really enjoy um, my favourite ever West End player is Hamilton. Yeah. And so I'm currently listening to Hamilcast, which is an interview with all of the cast members of oh, Hamilton. That sounds um, amazing. Both on Broadway. Have you, have, you been, have you seen Hamilton? I have. It's incredible, isn't it? So you should, you should check out Hamilcast. That's yeah. really good. Um, and yeah, in terms of books, 
I mean, I'm the I'm the classic reader of autobiographies and kind of positive thinking self help books. So my my you can people at home might be able to see this, but you will because you've got me on FaceTime. I've got my got my bookshelf behind with pretty much every book going. So yeah, I love to read. Um, but I suppose these days, with the advent of always having something available on Amazon and Netflix, sometimes it's a it's also a creative exercise to sit down and read a book. Jake. Thank you so much for that. I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you. Uh, me too. It's lovely. It's lovely to sit and chat. Thank you very much for taking the time and keep up the good work yourself. Did you spot the question I didn't ask Jake? 12 episodes in and I forgot to ask him the primary podcast question. How does he take his tea? Don't worry. I caught up with Jake after the recording and his tea order is bag left in, drop of milk, half a sugar, stronger the better. So now you know. I loved chatting to Jake. What a great guy. I always have a list of notes and thought starters for each episode. and I barely touched them this time, hence why I forgot about his tea order. The High Performance Podcast is such a great podcast. I'd highly recommend it. And like this one, it's available wherever you get your podcast. And the new series sounds great, doesn't it? Oh, and the Kickstarter for Coral Eyewear is officially live now. It's very, very exciting and it's such a great venture. The link for that is in this episode's bio. That's it for another episode of the Quarantine Break podcast. Please continue to subscribe for future episodes, share with your friends and family, and please continue to leave reviews like Adam Murphy, who this week recently started the podcast and called the Sarah Phelps episode his favourite so far. And true crime Nana, who said she really enjoyed last week's episode with Dane Baptiste. Thanks, guys. I will read more reviews out in future episodes. I just want to end this episode by saying that lockdown in many parts of the UK is easing significantly this weekend. And I get it's exciting to see parts of our life returning. I just want to say it's fine to feel happy about that, but it's also fine to feel scared. The next few weeks in so many ways might be the toughest so far. So please, let's all just look out for each other. I've always ended the show by telling you to stay indoors, but our world is changing. Instead, I'll say I'll be back very, very soon. But in the meantime, and as we emerge from these shadows, please be kind. <laughs>